0: Welcome to the Racisms Podcast. We're your hosts, Jaslyn and Lisa. We decided that this world could use more cross cultural
1: conversations that seek healing over division, understanding over ignorance, and a better world, and a better world overall.
0: conversations to make this world a better place. I'm Lisa, co-host of the podcast with Jaslyn. Hello. And today we're continuing with season three's theme, It's a White World Out There. And we have a special guest today, Joni. Full disclosure, she's in leadership at our work, but she's agreed to talk to us informally on the podcast. We're so happy to have you, Joni.
2: Hey, Lisa, and hey, Jaslyn. I'm really honored and I'm really excited to be here today. And uh, hi to everyone out there in Cyberland.
1: Thanks for being here, Joni.
0: So we have Joni on here today to talk about her growing up in the US as an Asian-American and her journey to leadership. Joni, could you first tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, like how you identify and also why you said yes to Jaslyn when she asked you to be on the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks, Lisa. So I identify as Chinese American. I was born in Taiwan and I moved to Cleveland uh, when I was one. And just jumping ahead a bunch of years, uh, I live in Frederick, Maryland, currently with my husband, Albert, and our multi-poo Sammy. And I have two grown sons and a daughter-in-law. And as Lisa mentioned, I work with Jaslyn and Lisa and I've worked there for about 26 years now. And um, yeah, so I've been listening to the racism's podcast episodes uh, ever since the uh, the podcast started and I've been a fan. And while I haven't made it through all the episodes yet, um, every single one that, I res- that I've listened to had something in it that would either make me think, wow, that really resonates with me or wow, I never thought about things that way before. So, I've, I've definitely been a fan. And that way, then when Jaslyn asked me to be on the con- podcast, it wasn't, it wasn't hard to say yes.
1: Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for saying yes, Joni.
2: <laughs> You're very welcome.
0: Yeah. We're, really, we're really honored that you reacted to the podcast that way, being like resonating with some or thinking about things another way. That's kind of why we, we started. So, really, really happy to hear that.
2: Yeah, I think in this in this recent era that we've been living in that, you know, the cross-cultural conversations are really important. And, you know, maybe we've just been hesitant to have them before.
0: True. That's true. Yeah. All right. So Joni and I actually share a bit of similar history because I am also from Taiwan, uh, but I, I came here when I was two, so a little a little older than you. No, and it's basically
1: year. the same. You guys basically <laughs> have the same <laughs> origin story.
0: <laughs> but I wanted to talk about Joni since you said you grew up in Cleveland. I grew up in Philadelphia, which maybe is a little more diverse than Cleveland. So, uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, what was like growing up, and you know, kind of like the racial makeup, if you remember of you know where you lived and grew up.
2: Yeah. So uh, just to back up a little bit, I mostly grew up in Cleveland. Um, you know, when we first came to the United States, we settled in Cleveland for a few years while my dad was finishing his education. And then there was this visa issue where we would have had to leave the country so he could change from one type of visa to another. And we, was he wasn't able to do that while we were still in Cleveland. So I was too, a little too young to understand how this all went down. But It didn't make sense to go all the way back to Taiwan. So someone helped my dad work out a job in Nova Scotia, Canada. So he worked there for a few years while he was reapplying to come back to the U.S. And we did return eventually back to Cleveland. So just as a disclaimer, I I haven't always been in Cleveland when I was growing up. Anyways, um, so Cleveland at the time that I was there uh, was not very diverse. And we lived in a suburb of Cleveland that was predominantly white. So I actually went back to my high school yearbook, dug that out of the uh, the, the dusty pile um, to confirm that I was one of three Asian kids in my graduating class. And I was one of maybe four or five people of color in the whole graduating class. Oh, wow. So I really stuck out. And it probably didn't help that I was also part of the geeky crowd, mainly because my life wouldn't have been worth living if I didn't get good grades <laughs> due to the, the pressure that my parents imposed there. Typical Asian tiger parents, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I always felt like, you know, I, I, I stuck out and I didn't really fit in with the rest of, the, you know, the, the rest of the kids and, you know, and my friends. I think a lot of the reason was my parents really didn't try to assimilate. You know, they came here and, you know, they didn't know the language. They didn't really understand the culture. And they found community in Cleveland with other Chinese families that were kind of spread out all over, you know, all over Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, they they wanted to maintain our Asian culture. They may, mainly socialized with these other families, mostly from our Chinese church.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember feeling like, okay, I, I don't want to be like that. I, I I remember, you know, I'm I'm and I'm mortified now, to to say this or to to remember this, that I was very I was embarrassed by them. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I never wanted to have friends over. Um, I prefer to go to other friends houses, you know, if I was ever out in public with my parents, and they spoke to me in Chinese, I was just like, Oh, don't talk to me. <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. I think that's probably some of that is probably normal between teenagers and, and their parents. I think a lot of teenagers butt heads with their parents. Anyways, um, but when there's like a cultural divide, I think it really exacerbates things. Mm-hmm. So you know, as I mentioned earlier, their focus was academics, and they didn't really see any value in extracurricular activities or social events. Um, except for music. So every Chinese kid has to take music lessons, right? And there are only three acceptable instruments, piano, violin, or cello, maybe flute. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember feeling like very rebellious about that. Like I didn't want to be that stereotypical geeky Chinese kid. You know, I really felt like I, I, I think at that point in my life, I just really wanted my Chinese culture to be not a thing for me. Um, I went out for cheerleading in high school because I just wanted, again, mm-hmm. to dispel that that stereotype. And I remember my parents were like, "What is this? And how <laughs> is this going to help you get into an Ivy League college?" <laughs> so they were just like totally flabbergasted by what this was about. And I don't think they came to any of my games. You know, like other mm-hmm. the other cheerleaders' parents would come to their games to watch them cheer. And my parents were like, well, that's just, you know, that's just not really worth anything. So, no, we're not going to we're not going to support that. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, so that was kind of like how I grew up, just really rebelling against, I think, what my parents felt was the acceptable thing to do as a as a as a child. Um, You know, there were just a lot of things that were so different. And thinking back on it now, I know where they're coming from. You know, they grew up in in a situation where you had to pass exams just to even get into high school you know, you had to pass an exam to get into college. If you failed those exams, that was it. I mean, you didn't have, there wasn't like a redo, you know, so they spent their whole, you know, lives as as, as a young adult, children and young adults, basically preparing for these exams so they could move on, like, to that next phase of their of their education. And it, that's just not the way it is here in the United States. So my main memory of that period of my life was feeling like I was on the outside looking in, and I felt like I had to spend a lot of energy to fit in, you know, like things that came naturally to my friends um, that weren't of color. I felt like I just had to do a whole lot more to just be like them. Um, The one place that I didn't feel like an outsider was church, uh, because we went to a Chinese church, and oh yes, um, Chinese school, where all of the Chinese American kids that were there were, I think, all bonded by their hatred of having to be there on Saturday mornings. (laughs) So those were the places that, you know, because I was with people like me, I felt definitely more comfortable and more like I didn't have to, you know, act like something that I I really wasn't. Um, But at the same time, I I really didn't feel like I wanted to be Chinese. You know, I would rather have been, you know, anything else, I think, at that point Mm -hmm. in my life.
1: Do you think that's because of the neighborhood or the community you grew up in? Like, because your school was... um, so overwhelmingly, white. do you want to be like that or why do you think you felt like that?
2: Yeah, I think I think that probably is it, Jazlyn. And an interesting contrast maybe to bring in here is my husband, you know, who's also Chinese, but he has a completely different outlook on life than I do. And he he grew up in a very Chinese environment. Actually, he was born in Chinatown in New York City. Mm. And then his family moved to the Bronx where he was surrounded by, you know, a lot of Asian families. He also went to the Bronx High School of Science, which I think is like 85% Asian or something like that. So almost all of his friends were Asian from a very young age. So he never experienced the isolation and the awkwardness that I felt growing up. Mm. And to this day, I think he has a really hard time understanding like why it, you know, maybe still has some sort of an impact on me. Um, mm. I maybe this is best illustrated with this um, incident that happened to me right after we moved to Frederick about 25 years ago. You know, Frederick back then wasn't very diverse. And um, I was in a grocery store and looking at something on the shelf and I heard someone come up behind me and they said a racial slur as they were passing behind me. And I whipped around to see what the heck And I saw the person going around the corner and I just stood there kind of paralyzed for a minute and it just sort of like was this PTSD moment of like my, you know, maybe my elementary school years where things like that might have been said to me as a kid. And I just stood there for a minute, like completely shocked. And then I got so angry. I started to look for that person. I was, all I saw was a glimpse of them as they went around the corner. So I wasn't really sure who I was looking for, but I was just walking around looking for somebody. And Mm -hmm. I just was getting angrier and angrier as I was walking. And I was thinking, you know, if I find this person, I'm going to say this and this and this. And they were like, not nice things. They were definitely Mm -hmm. not things you would say in polite company. And I went home and I told my husband this and I'm in tears practically. And he's just like, why do you care about what someone you don't even know said to you? I, I wouldn't even care at all. Just let it go. And I was just like, okay, but it's hard for me to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of illustrates what you were just asking about, Jaslyn. That um, you know, because I grew up in a in an environment where I really stood out. I think it probably you know impacted how you know sort of my my view of things. You know throughout the rest of my life where for my husband like he never had felt that feeling before mm-hmm. where he was you know different than everybody else if that makes any sense yeah
0: it's a, I mean, that's a really clear contrast and that's just really interesting that you both can have such like different perspectives you know living here in the us i find it really fascinating
2: yeah yeah and like i said he he actually was born here but he grew up in an environment, you know, I would have expected him to have ha- a harder time assimilating because of that. But, you know, really, he just he's just felt very comfortable in his own skin, like, you know, from the get go. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, I, yeah,
0: I mean, I could I can relate to almost everything that you talked about. I think we do have the same origin story. <laughs> Another, yeah, My parents also uh, are immigrants and they also focus on academics and. I played the violin. I was in the in the in the, in the honors classes and things like that. Uh, I grew up in a more diverse environment where there was a large Asian population, and I did have a lot of uh, Asian friends. And I also went to a Chinese church and also Chinese school. It's really interesting how you felt it difficult to assimilate, whereas for me, and I talked about this in past seasons like it almost came easily in terms of like I almost felt like I was white without like I mean I knew I was Chinese but I felt white in those white spaces um and then I didn't actually realize that or I didn't really feel I was a lot of I was so different until I came back from Taiwan after college you know being where I was part of the majority culture there coming here I really felt different so yeah, it's just really interesting how you you saw assimilation as this like really challenging thing, and that you never really attained it. Whereas I felt like I had attained it, but I but in in, in reality I I don't retain and we don't attain it because we could never um, be like that. So did you feel any different when you moved on to uh, college? Yes. Was...
2: Yes, absolutely. I was actually going to just move on to that. Is hmm. You know, I think when I, you know, when when I got to college, I found a lot more acceptance. I think most people find a lot more acceptance in college, regardless of, you know, whatever background they came from or whatever their you know ethnic origins are. I think there's just so much more diversity and openness. And then you, you are working with more mature people generally, right? Not like middle school and high school kids. Um, You know, and I majored in a STEM field, so there were lots of lots of other Asians around. And I would think I was able to channel my inner geek without feeling like, you know, I was really different from everybody else. So I have definitely moved away from that feeling of not belonging, I would say, in a major way since since college and graduate school. But I think that feeling still sort of haunts me somewhat. And it's definitely given me a great deal of empathy for people that I see being left out. You know, whenever I see people eating by themselves in a cafeteria or if I, like, see a movie where someone's bullied or someone who's not included in an event, it just breaks my heart. You know, so I think those early experiences really kind of shaped my empathy for those that are not being included. Hmm. And that's, you know, something I've carried with me, um, you know, for for most of my life.
1: I guess that's a, a positive side to feeling othered is you sometimes you you develop that empathy for others (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and and can feel their pain more because you've experienced it yourself Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I do have a serious question um in your attempt to assimilate did you go through a crazy hair phase like Lisa did
2: oh I would (laughs) I would never (laughs) I would never have been allowed to do that that would have been I don't think I'd be alive today (laughs) I was you know I was rebellious but I did never do things like I think I knew where the line was you Mm. know and I did respect my parents I really did you know even though like typical teenager I probably rolled my eyes at them all the time Um, I did respect their authority and I knew there were things that I was not I I just wasn't going to go there Um, but I do have to admit there were times when you know I wanted to go hang out at friends houses and my parents were always like why, why are you hanging out with people? Shouldn't you be studying instead? Like that was the, like social things. Like they didn't mm-hmm. grow up doing social things, right? In high school. Mm-hmm. So I would sometimes lie and tell them I was going to friends' houses to study <laughs> when we would actually just be goofing around instead. So, you know, I, that's probably the extent of my rebellion.
1: <laughs> uh, do you think your parents loosened up a little bit over time? or?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I have, a, I have two sisters. One is two years younger than me. Uh, but she kind of we sort of grew up in the same, you know, household type, so to speak. But we have a sister that's 11 years younger and mm. she has probably if she were to be here, she would probably tell you a very different, you know, type <laughs> a tale of, of growing up in my family. <laughs> so I think they definitely loosened up or they just got exhausted mm. or and just didn't feel like they wanted to, you know, deal with with those things anymore. But we all took piano lessons. We all took piano lessons for years and years and years and Every time we wanted to quit, my mom would say, when I was your age, I would have loved to have piano lessons, but my family couldn't afford it. So you just have to stay, you know, we're just like, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they definitely, uh, they, they definitely were different parents, I think, for my youngest sister than they were for my, you know, the other sister and me. mm
0: mm-hmm. I mean, my kids are three years apart and I already
2: am more lax
0: with them. (laughs) So I can, 11 years, that's a big difference. So I can see how they, yeah, we're more lax.
2: Yeah, so something that I was thinking about when, you know, looking at, um, you know, the questions for for this episode was, you know, with my kids, with my own kids, I felt like I went 180 degrees in the other direction. You know, I did not want to be the Chinese family. You know, so we wanted them to be, I, I should say, my husband was probably not, it wasn't probably as big of a deal for him, Mm -hmm. Um, but I really wanted them to to fit in. I did not want them to be, you know, self-conscious the way I was growing up. I didn't want them to feel they were on the outside. So, you know, we signed them up for soccer and for baseball and football. And, you know, we mostly ate Western food at home. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't make them go to Chinese. Well, I shouldn't say I didn't make them go to Chinese school. I did make one of them go to Chinese school and it was epic fail (laughs) so but you know we didn't make a big deal about that you know we did things that our white neighbors and friends did um so I feel like I really went too far in the other direction Um, I feel like you know sometimes Asian friends at work would say like oh happy blah 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 and it'll be some Chinese festival and I'd be like oh I didn't even know that festival was going on right now like you know my mom would call and be like oh did you guys celebrate blah 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 and I'd be like, oh no, I didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. Um I just wasn't it wasn't a, a priority for me. And mm-hmm. I feel sort of now looking back that I I wish I had, you know, been more moderate in my attempt to assimilate. Because I think mm-hmm. what I ended up doing was just kind of throwing it all out, you know, like sort of like throwing out the baby with the bath water. Mm-hmm. And Lisa's heard this before. Um but when my youngest son was in preschool, they did the series where they did like a focus on different countries. And when they got to the China um, unit, they said to my son, one of the teachers said to my son, Matthew, um, she said, Matthew's family is from China and Matthew. And according to the teacher, he just looked up really, really puzzled. And he said, I always thought my family was from Cleveland. (laughs) He didn't associate himself as Chinese. And I mm-hmm. when I heard that, I think my heart sort of sunk a little bit, you know mm-hmm. that I really had gone so far the other direction that my kids didn't even think of themselves as Chinese anymore and I'm you know if I could go back and do a redo, I think every parent with kids always wishes they could go back and do redos. Um, you know I think I would definitely have taken a different approach mm-hmm. to maintaining our Chinese culture, but yet you know not to the extent where they felt so different from everybody else. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a hard balance to, to strike. You never, we're, we're always going to do it wrong, Joni. We're never going to do it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you just have to just hope for the best, right? Exactly, exactly. There was actually a time when I decided that they needed to take piano lessons. I actually, you know, we owned a piano and I was like, oh, they're going to take piano lessons. And then I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is what my parents did to me. They did, made me take piano lessons and I'm going to let my kids play whatever instrument they want. So they chose totally different instruments. My oldest son ended up playing guitar, and my younger son um, ended up playing drums. And um, my mom was, I remember talking to my mom about that when he was younger, and she, she was like, are drums even an instrument? <laughs> she didn't even consider that to be a musical instrument, and she was just like, ah, oh, no, you should make him play piano. It's like, okay, no, Mom, not, go, not going there.
1: Oh, wow. So can you talk a little bit about your, I guess, adult children now? How are they with their identity? Have they embraced it or what do you think?
2: Well, what's really interesting is my oldest son married um, a a Chinese uh, woman and her family are immigrants. So she's sort of like me, like 30 years later. Right so I really relate to her very well because she's growing up as the children of immigrants whereas my kids you know they didn't have that same experience so um I think because of that and you know you know being part of her family my oldest son is definitely understanding a lot more about Chinese culture because you know they make it more of a priority and she did you know same thing with her she went to Chinese school music lessons the whole bit and there were lots of things that while they were dating Uh, My, my son, Matthew would, would ask me about, I don't get that. Why do they make her do that? Or, you know, why is she needing to do this? And I would explain to him and because I understood Mm -hmm. and he didn't. So I think that, you know, have being married to her has sort of brought him closer to, um, you know, his Chinese culture. And I I sort of feel like in a way he has a chance to, you know, pick up on those things that maybe he missed uh, growing up in our family. Uh, my younger son, I don't know, he's he's very comfortable in his skin too. You know, none of them have ever come back from school when they were younger and was crying because somebody picked on them or, or said something, um, you know, you know, said a Chinese slur to them or anything like that. So I have to believe that, you know, they were very confident and um, comfortable yeah. and didn't really feel that they were left out of anything. You know, they both had lots of friends and they, you know, did well in school, but they weren't you know, picked on as being geeky or anything like that. So I, you know, like like we were just saying, you never know with your kids sometimes, you know, how how the things you might have done as children might have scarred them or traumatized them or, you know, otherwise impacted them. Um, but they seem like, you know, pretty, pretty healthy. And, you know, we have lots of discussions about race and culture and things like that, uh, particularly around Black Lives Matter, you know, as, you know as 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 a lot of those topics were becoming more prominent and they're very multicultural in their approach probably maybe more so than their father and i mm-hmm. and they're def- that they definitely you know are proud of their her- heritage i think they're not ashamed of it and mm-hmm. i think they also are very interested in the you know the ethnicities and the and the heritages of of other friends of theirs that are are not white
3: mm-hmm. Well, that's good yeah.
0: So maybe we could move on to uh, another topic about leadership and how uh, Joni, your upbringing, your experiences have shaped it. Um, our first question is, um, did you have leaders in your life growing up, and were they Asian?
2: Uh, can you talk about that? Well, I would say not really in terms of like traditional leadership hmm. um, you know when I think about what I am as a leader today, I think about my parents, you know, and I, they were really role models for me, you know, whether that was role models for traditional leadership or not, you know, I don't know. Um, But they definitely, you know, they, they served as role models for me growing up. And maybe you're surprised to hear this after what I said earlier about, you know, how hard it was for me to assimilate into the predominantly what culture around me because my parents didn't really try to do that. But they really are, you know, people that I admire and, and greatly respect. Um, you know, now that I'm an adult with kids of my own, I think about how hard life must have been for them as immigrants. You know, I can't imagine. I couldn't imagine leaving their friends and family and everything they knew behind for this promise of a better life in the United States. But they came here. They didn't know the language or the culture well. I am absolutely positive. They don't really speak of it. But I am positive they experience a lot of racism and discrimination, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I know it could not have been easy. Like my mother, even today, you know, she was a stay at home mom and she didn't get out into the work world the way my father did. You know, her English today is still not, you know, very fluent. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: I'm sure that it must have been awful for her just to go to the grocery store and ask for something. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. imagine feeling, you know, just so, you know, out of things like that. I don't think I could have survived it, you know, with two young kids to take care of. Um, I think although I rolled my eyes at them as a teenager many, many times at the things they would tell me, I think the things that they, ta- they told me back in those years have really stuck with me. You know, they really value hard work. I think maybe that's sort of an immigrant family thing. You know, the hard work is is really, you know, what, what lifts you out of the, those difficult times. You know, they really emphasized to me about following through on commitments. You know, I remember there were times when someone would ask me about something and I would say, yeah, I'll get back to you. And I and I wouldn't. And my dad would be like, oh, did you ever get back to somebody on that? And I would be mm-hmm. like, no, it's fine. And he'd be like, no, you have to tell them mm-hmm. what you're either doing or not doing. You can't just let it hang there. And that was something he really emphasized, you know, through most of my time growing up. They both really emphasized you know helping others like i think mm-hmm. that's maybe another immigrant attribute is you know you remember how hard it was when you came to the to country and you make it a point to help others you know that come after you
3: mm-hmm.
2: so you know my dad he worked i would say it was not unusual for him to work 14 to 18 hour days as a doctor mm-hmm. he never i've never heard him complain ever about you know how grueling his job sometimes was I think there were times that I'd hear the um, phone ring at 3 in the morning, and then I'd hear him go out the door. And then I'd get up and go to school, and he still wouldn't have come home yet. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad is the most patient, kind, and humble person that I've ever, ever known. And I think those are things I emulate. So like I said, you know, he wasn't necessarily an organizational leader, but I think those are attributes of leaders you know, that I've really picked up on growing up just watching him in action. You know, I don't think I've ever heard him say a crossword to anybody. Well, except except maybe one time. This is kind Mm -hmm. of funny. I remember hearing the phone ring in the middle of the night. And I'm pretty sure it was a resident. And I heard him just listening for a minute. And then I heard him say, you called me at three in the morning to ask me that? Mm -hmm. And then he just hung up the phone. (laughs) I remember thinking... I've never, ever, other than that time, ever heard him say anything mean to anybody. (laughs) You know, so that's something that, you know, is is something I I carry with me too. Like, there's never any need to be mean to people, you Mm -hmm. know, to say mean things to people. Like, one should always be respectful and kind. Even if you're not happy about something, there is just no reason to ever be, you know, to ever shout or raise your voice at somebody. And that's something I I, I try, try, try to remember, you know, as I deal with people uh, in my life um my parents also recently sold their house and you know of course as most people do they accumulate a lot of stuff over time and we were helping them to declutter and get rid of things and we came across my sisters and i we came across this big box of awards and thank Mm. yous from patients and things that my dad had received and we were like oh my goodness he never mentioned any of this like we were looking at all these awards he never hung any of them up he never even mentioned them to people they were just like sitting in a box you know he was the most humble person, you know very quiet, very humble. He never ever tooted his own horn about anything
3: oh, that's so beautiful.
2: My mom was i think she to the Chinese community in Cleveland, I think she was like a second mom or like an honorary grandmother and mm. she, to to the younger immigrant families and the graduate students that came to cleveland to to to- you know study at the universities there. She would be the first to bring you a meal if you had a baby or if you were sick. Um, she used to go to yard sales all the time, just looking for household items that she could buy and give to families that had just moved to Cleveland from overseas. And
3: mm.
2: I can't even count the number of meals that went out the door to others. And and that really instilled upon me the importance of helping, helping others. I have to believe that her time as a newly arrived immigrant probably gave her a deep amount of empathy for others. You know, in that in that boat. And she wanted to pay forward, I think, the help and the community that she had experienced in her early days in the United States. So she's really instilled in me um, that that value. And uh, she's the best hostess. She throws parties like like you wouldn't believe dozens of people, you know, doesn't even phase her to feed like 30 people. And it's uh, I think it's still her greatest joy to feed people.
3: Mm.
2: So that was kind of a long answer to the question of, you know, were there leaders in my life growing up? um and i would say you know you know maybe there were parent, my my friends my parents friends you know who were leaders in their respective you know workplaces that, and maybe i i wasn't i wasn't aware that they were leaders um but you know as as far as in the my growing up years i would have to say that my parents probably uh really filled that filled that role hmm.
0: And I really liked, yeah, I really liked how you mentioned all the qualities of a good leader. I think that's really important, not just, like, who is or can be a leader, but, like, what makes a good leader. I think that's really, that's really great to hear.
1: Yeah. It's nice to know that, um, as parents, like, you know, you're, outwardly your child may not be happy with everything you're doing, but they're always watching you and they're observing how you treat people, um and uh, how you move about the world. And it sounds like the qualities of your parents really seeped in underneath all of your disdain for.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think for all the parents out there listening, I think that's a very good point, Jazlyn, that you might feel like they are not listening to you at all. And, you know, everything you do is in vain. And, you know, even with my own kids, like sometimes every now and then one of them will say, hey, mom and dad, it was really great that you taught us, you know, fill in the blank. And we'd be Mm -hmm. just like, you know falling over on the floor because we're just like oh my gosh seriously like that stuck with you and oh okay so we did some good <laughs> in the time that we were facing you you don't always hear that until much later so yes so don't 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 despair the good things that you do for your kids will come next to you.
1: As a research scientist, um, did you always envision yourself moving into leadership roles or um, did it just the opportunity to present itself? How did you make that transition?
2: Ah, that's a great question, Jazaline. And I'm going to tell you a secret. I never, ever aspired to being in any management roles. <laughs> I never wanted to be any type of organizational leader. I actually never even intended to go to graduate school. So Mm
3: -hmm.
2: life is just really interesting. It doesn't ever work out the way you plan, but it always works out. Um, I don't know if you are, either of you were at the uh, February town hall where Mm -hmm. I said that I never envisioned myself as acting director. And I told the story about that movie, That Thing You Do, where at the end, one of the characters says to another character, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. And I think most days I wake up thinking, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with big, three big question marks after that question. So I came out of college thinking, I'm done with school and I'm not doing any more school. You know, I, I figured, you know, PhD, that's like for people that are geniuses. That's certainly not me. <laughs> um, I got a really good job as a research scientist in a company that manufactured copper foil for printed circuit boards. And there was a lot of research and product development involved in making sure that the copper foil would stick to the circuit boards through the processing of the boards and also their future, you know, their eventual use in electronic devices. So I really enjoy carrying out research in surface science and adhesion. And um, I just figured I could just keep working at this company forever because it was great. It was the kind of job you really enjoy getting up and and going to every day. So about three years in, you know, like the saying, all good things must come to an end. Um, About three years into that, my husband, he receives this really great job offer in Lynchburg, Virginia. And we decide, yeah, we got to do this because this is a great career opportunity for him. And I was like, I'll just find another job. Well, the problem was I couldn't find another job down there. I don't know if you've ever been to southwestern Virginia. There's not a whole lot down there in terms of major industry. Um, and the interesting thing was around that time, I was starting to get a little frustrated in my career because there was a Ph.D. scientist who was hired to work in my group, and he did not have any polymer or adhesion science expertise at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything he said, management would listen to because he had a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. and I did not. So I started thinking around that time, you know what, you know, if I can't find a job. Maybe I should just go to graduate school. And it turned out that Virginia Tech, which at that time had a newly funded uh, NSF center of adhesion and surface science, it was just down the road. So we ended up settling in Roanoke, Virginia, and um, I went to school at Virginia Tech. So I, I enrolled there and I got my PhD, and that led me, you know, to where I am today. Um, well, guess this is just as an, as an aside. Roanoke was an even less diverse environment than Cleveland but you know maybe that's a story for for later on or for another day. Oh, I
1: can only imagine. I'm
2: to... <laughs> I, I did a visit
1: you... to Virginia Tech on my uh, tour of schools.
2: Oh you did so that was one of the places you considered that. Yeah and I
1: was like nope.
2: <laughs> well actually Blacksburg is fairly diverse because of the university but mm. once you get like three miles out from Blacksburg <laughs> no (laughs) right yes even you know it it wasn't and there are no major cities which generally you know have more diverse populations so i think that definitely that was that was definitely an interesting experience people used to follow me around in the grocery store Mm. um, when i was there but anyways um yeah so coming out of college i never really considered graduate school at all it was not in my career plans and i never envisioned going to graduate school or becoming you know any kind of major leader in any organization, um, so that, that that doesn't actually answer your question about moving from a bench researcher to management. Um, but during my time in graduate school, I fell in love with the, the lab. I loved diving into, like diving deep, you know, into scientific questions, um, looking at data, trying to figure out what is this data trying to tell me. I know there's a story here. I loved that aha moment when something clicked. Or when a hypothesis I'd been thinking about was shown to be true, and I continued to love research. You know where we work now. Uh, when I first came there, and also knowing you know that you know I was doing something you know for the public good. I never thought about being in management. I, I never aspired to it. So people have asked me similar questions as you are asking me. You know how did you know what? How did I aspire to management? How did I? How did I? You know, kind of set my course to get there and you know the honest answer is i never really did i i really felt that i could just continue doing research for the rest of my career um so once again um all good things come to an end um what happened was my division chief at the time retired and my group leader was asked to take his place and my group leader told me that he would only do it if i took his place as group leader hmm. and i said no <laughs> so <laughs> I was asked again later that year and I again said no and then the third time was the charm and actually at that point there was a little bit more pressure applied from further up the chain and before you knew it I was group leader. So at that point in time you know I remember thinking maybe I've had a good run as a researcher. I've had a good run. And I had the privilege of coming to work every day and having a great time doing research. And I didn't have to worry about managing people or a budget or worrying about strategy or vision or politics. Because someone else was taking care of all of that. Someone else was taking one for the team. So I and my fellow researchers could be in the lab doing these fun things that we were doing. So the more I thought about that, that, the more I thought about how, you know, in a way that was like being a kid and having your parents take care of everything And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have to worry about, you know, how is this roof over my head coming about? How is there food on the table? You just sort of got up every day and did your thing, right? So I think at that point, I I really encountered sort of an attitude adjustment where I felt, okay, you know, maybe this is time for me to step up and be the parent. To do the same for others that have been done for me all these years. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. So I think at that point in time, I was able to, you know, channel the joy that I had in the lab to making that experience available for others. So, you know, so, yeah, going back to the beginning, I would never have, you know, started out, you know, my career saying, you know, one day I'm going to be, you know, whatever. I just wanted to do research and I have to admit, there are times, you know, when I walk through the hall and I see, you know, peek into the labs and see what people are working on, and it makes me a little nostalgic, you know, for the time that I had as a as a research scientist and, mm-hmm. and being able to do the research and write the papers and go to conferences and present the work and you know hop, hobnob and rub elbows with researchers in my field and learn from them. You know, I I if I don't I don't know if I was ever ever given the chance to do that again. Mm. You know, it would be very, very tempting, I would have to say. But I I feel like I can use other abilities that I have to make that opportunity to, you know, to enable others to do that.
1: Mm -hmm. I like how you approach leadership as um, a a place where you can ensure others have the support and the opportunities that you already did have. Mm -hmm. It's a a Nice way to look at leadership, and I wish more leaders were like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, now that you have moved into management, you've been in there for a while. How do you think um, last year, with all that happened, uh, has changed your outlook on leadership and how you approach it?
2: I think I learned a lot um, over this past year, and I think that part of the way I had been operating, you know, I I mentioned this earlier, you know, is hard work, right? This is you you get to where you get because you work hard. And I feel like that mirror, you know, I didn't realize that was really, you know, that was part of this whole meritocracy issue that people struggle with. And I just never realized that until this past year, that it's not just about working hard. And it's not just about if you're not where you think you should be in your career, it's because you just haven't been working hard enough. Like, you know i remember my mom actually saying to me because you're chinese and you're different from others you are going to have to work twice as hard as everybody else to get to the same place and i just sort of accepted that and mm. it wasn't until recently then i thought well should i've had to do that like should i have had to work twice as hard to get the same opportunities as everyone else you know and i think that's really like what's you know the 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 racial issues that have come up in this last year and it's really made me think about, you know, how fair are our processes? You know, mm-hmm. is it, are there people who are working as hard as they can, but they just have barriers in their lives and inequities that exist in the system that make it impossible for them to compete with others, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to do something that, you know, should be available to all, you know? So has definitely um, crossed my mind. And I, I hope that, you know, the work that we're doing with our diversity inclusion and belonging council at, at work you know are really starting to delve into some of those issues because it's it's just too simplistic to say just work hard and you'll get to where you want to go
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know that's mm-hmm. completely not realistic and I don't think I actually realized that until this past year
0: yeah I mean I have to agree Joni with you on that because like you said you know immigrant families they do they do t- t- say these things a lot, you know, like work hard, do your best and you'll succeed. And yeah, me too. Like this past year, I've had to come to the grips with that. It is um, a system that is not, doesn't treat everyone the same. You can work hard and you could fail. You could work hard and you succeed. You could be lazy <laughs> and succeed, you know, in this system. That's just completely unfair to uh, certain racial groups, but, you know, favor the white majority uh, racial group. So I really appreciate that you're thinking about the processes that, you know, our work and how it can help everyone, not just people who, quote unquote, work hard.
2: Yes. And I think in, you know, as a, you know, in a STEM field, I don't feel that so much the issue for me has been the fact that I'm Asian. I think really what has been impressed upon me more is, you know, how women have, You know such difficulties in you know being able to compete with others for like leadership roles and promotions and things like that and you know i remember being in a discussion about um somebody that was up for promotion and this woman had a gap in her um work history because she had taken time off to raise her children And there were some comments made about that and, you know, how she had taken so long to get to this place where she could finally be promoted. You know, maybe she really wasn't meant to be promoted because she just took so long to get there. And Mm -hmm. I just remember being completely livid that we would be penalizing somebody for taking time to raise their children. You know, that just, I think, hits such a chord with me. Because what are we as a society if we're not looking out for our next generation, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is widely known um, at, you know, where we work or not, but I was actually part-time. I worked part-time for, I think, since my, I think around the time that my youngest child was born to about the time that he was um, in first grade. And that was the best thing for me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I worked seven, I think I worked 32 hours a week, and that, just that, Cutting back from 40, just that little bit made such a huge difference in how I was able to, you know, get them to their activities and how I was able to participate in their school functions and volunteer at their schools and things like that. It made such a huge difference. I wouldn't give that time. I wouldn't give that back. I wouldn't, I don't regret any of that. You Mm -hmm. know, and maybe I was, you know, maybe it took me a little longer, but I have no regrets whatsoever. And um, I think that, you know, we can't be looking at, career trajectories and worrying about like how long it took someone to get somewhere. You know, once you get there, then you should, that should be it. You know, the, the time it took shouldn't be a factor. And I remember just being very, very aware of the thinking of maybe some of the folks um, around me, you know, around women and, and promotions and trying to juggle, you know, their, their life at home and, and their time at work.
0: Yeah, I for I almost forgot, Joni, I think that's but uh, the f- I forgot that you uh, have been part-time for uh several years. I think there was someone in our uh in our laboratory who um was also part-time for I think all of her career and she was inducted into like this uh this elite group of researchers. So it gives me I mean for me as a working mother, I think it's it's great to have you and her as examples that you don't Necessarily have to you know work you don't have to do the same things that everyone else is doing in order to be respected and uh, Revered at work, so I think uh, that's that's a great thing to remind people is that uh, You don't have to work 40 hours or you know 80 hours a week in order to um, advance in your career and I think it's great that you're paving the way for other people not just women but other people who you know, may need uh, more flexibility in their work in order to still have the opportunities to advance. I think that's great.
2: Yeah, and I, I've had some really great conversations with my daughter-in-law about this, you know, and her her parents are also, they're professionals, and her dad is actually a professor. And, you know, we both recognize, you know, as we were talking over this past year that, you know, we both have to really recognize that we 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 grew up in, in privilege, you know, like we came from a place where education was very valued, and our parents provided the means, you know, for those educate for that education, and support. And you know, it's very different. We grew up in very privileged environments, and we shouldn't just take that for granted. And that's just not something that everybody comes to the workplace, you know, with. And I think it took, you know, at least it took me, you know, when for her to, to mention that, for me to realize that too. That you know. It's it's not that easy for some folks. And it's, you know, if you don't come from an upbringing, you know, where you, your education is supported and, you know, you didn't have to come out with like a ton of college loans and things like that, it, it makes a huge difference in how you're able to approach your career.
1: Yeah, that's an important point. You mentioned uh, briefly there was um, work going on At our job around diversity, including inclusion and belonging. And I was just wanted to know what you, how or how you define belonging in the context of the workplace.
2: You know, to me, belonging means that you are, you know, it kind of everything else kind of comes like the inclusion comes with that. But I think inclusion doesn't always extend to belonging. You can be included in something and still not feel like you belong. And I think an example of that is um, I have a friend who works in a different organization than us, and she works with predominantly men. And she is, I'm doing the air quotes, always included in discussions and project meetings and, you know, things like that. But and nobody is ever like overtly disrespectful or, you know, exclusion, you know, excludes her. But she never has ever felt like she was welcomed or belonged. You know, if if that makes any sense, Mm. like nobody was ever overtly rude to her, but she just never got the sense that she was part of the team, Mm
3: -hmm. you know, and
2: I think that belonging is you really get the sense that you are a valued member of the team, that your opinion matters and it will be considered. And the approaches that you propose are ones that, you know, people are going to look at and say, yeah, that's a great perspective. You know, we hadn't thought about that before. Let's, 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 let's continue with this. Um, as opposed to you're just invited to a meeting you sit there and you or you say things and nobody really pays much attention you know so I think there is definitely you know differentiation between inclusion and belonging and inclusion is where we want I mean belonging is where we want to be in the end you know people do their best work when they feel they belong you know when you feel like you can open your mouth at a meeting and say something and people aren't just going to look at you like you have two heads Mm -hmm. you know I think it makes a huge difference like the type of the best you that you bring to work I think it's only going to come when you feel you belong and sometimes that means you you don't feel afraid to say something because people are going to you know like I said you know look at you like what are you talking about you know mm-hmm. if you can feel comfortable enough somewhere where you can say something that's really off the wall and you're not going to fear the fallout from that I think that's maybe when you can consider that you really belong.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, like, just think about, like, your most comfortable group of friends that you can just say anything to. And they're not going to be like, oh, Jasmine or Lisa, that's, like, so stupid. And they're just not going to be friends with you anymore because you said something one time that didn't make sense to them. Mm. You know what I mean? It's that complete oh, yes. I know feeling of acceptance.
1: I say a lot of stuff like that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's how I would feel. That's I think how I would feel. Define belonging is mm. that you can, you know, not be afraid to be your true self. Yeah and I, and
0: I mean what you described there s- sounds nearly impossible <laughs> <laughs> to 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 ensure or to even create uh everywhere I mean yeah what do I I guess we I'm just talking out loud like what is what is what how can we get there I guess as a as a theoretical discussion you know yeah. how do you get to a place where people can belong when it's such a personal specific
2: things. it is and I think what gets in the way are just people's different personalities you know some people just have that personality that makes you feel welcomed and you're not afraid to say things and then there are just going to be other people that just have a different persona you know like you just might look at them and say like oh okay yeah I'm sure they're perfectly fine people but you know there just might be things that I'm just not going to say and I'm not, never going to feel entirely comfortable around this person mm-hmm. yeah so I, it is really it, it is really difficult Lisa and I think that you know we're all not you know if we were all super super highly evolved people I think we would arrive at belonging a lot sooner and more easily but I think that sometimes there are there are preconceived biases that are very hard to shake right sometimes they're so subconscious we don't even know we have them you know those come into play as well so yeah so definitely you know that sense of 100% belonging somewhere is, you know, I, I think we still need to strive for that, but, you know, to really achieve it for every single individual and in every organization. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's definitely not something that can just be like, oh, you know, do this and it will happen. There's no magic wand for that.
1: Yeah, I think I talked a little bit about maybe in season one about how I don't necessarily feel um, comfortable or even the need to bring my full self to work or my, you know, my whole self to work. Um, I don't know. If, I think I said it's like a preemptive measure to, uh, mitigate any, any undue, uh, tension or any undue maybe prejudice to come my way. If I just bring my professional self, the best professional self that I know of. Um, to work and just leave it at that. And I think it would be nice if everybody um, at a workplace can just trust that, number one, the HR professionals that hire people thoroughly vetted these people and, you know, come to the conclusion that they are capable of the work, regardless of who they are, what they look like, and just be an open mind to um, learn about people. You know, get to know people for who they are. And I don't know how you can instill that in, like, existing workforce. It'd probably be easier to um, vet people that you hire. But, you know, in our workplace, there are a lot of uh, older folks <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that have worked for a long time. And, you know, people are set in their ways. hmm Uh, so yeah it's it's a difficult yeah Mm.
2: i think the biases that we carry in us are just sometimes so deeply ingrained you know like i don't know that it would we would have to go to like psychotherapy or something to get rid of some of them um you know what comes to mind there uh, jasmine is i was part of we were interviewing for a new staff member in our group this was many many years ago and um There was a woman who interviewed and she did great i mean she had great resume she interviewed really well after the interview one of the male members of the um, interview committee said she just was dressed way too flashy to be a serious scientist and i was like what you know and she wasn't like inappropriately dressed but she was very stylish probably more stylish than the average scientist (laughs) that you would see but you know she would dress up for an an interview right I just remember being flabbergasted that you're going to this you're going to actually you know consider her to be less of a serious scientist because of the way she was dressed and like I said, it wasn't inappropriate at all, but you know I think the thought was if you are that concerned about your appearance, you can't possibly be a good scientist <laughs> so I was just sort of like I think my mouth was sort of hanging open on on that statement, and I think that person just always had this sense that a serious scientist looks like Albert Einstein, you know, <laughs> frizzy hair and, you know, frumpy clothing or something like that. You know, that that, that was a little hard to, to hear.
0: So, Johnny, do you think that you're able to bring a full self to work or a, a full enough self to work that you feel like you belong there? Um,
2: that's a really good question. I would say maybe not. Because I think my true, you know, I, I'm probably a snarkier person than you see at work. And <laughs> oh, I yes, really let the snarky Joanie. Back. Yes, please. Oh, no, you you can ask my husband about the snarky <laughs> or, or my kids. You know, so maybe, you know, the snarky part of me does, doesn't come out in public. It's not just a workplace thing, but, you know, it's probably even in my, in my social circle. Um, you know, so I, I would say that I just, I have a, a a more sarcastic way of thinking sometimes that I just don't, I just don't put out there um, either in my social circle or my professional life, but that's just kind of the person I am. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think what I also have to work uh, toward is, you know, I, I think I tend to be more critical than I like to be sometimes. And I have to really work on that to think about, okay, what's going on in this situation? Like, should, I should not just rush to judgment i need to think more about like you know what's the context here and you know, what are people's motivations here you know what else is driving you know this behavior so those are things that i feel like I, I i need to work on and this is also applying this applies also to my personal life and not just professional life but you know i think that that's something that is i really feel like i need to be very cognizant of and if i just let my true self operate then i'm judging and i'm thinking about things that, you know, without really having the time to delve into the why of something.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah. I think that we talk about bringing our full selves to work. And yeah, Jasmine and I have talked about this, um, in past seasons. And like, we don't necessarily have to bring our full selves to work. We just have to bring the version of ourselves to work that we're, I think the most comfortable with, I guess, or, the one doesn't that doesn't cause a person to be stressed out about going to work, um, like we've talked about code switching before. And like, if if you don't find that process to be stressful, then then that's 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 good for you. But if for another person, that could be a very stressful situation, and we want to like uh, lighten that kind of stress. So, I mean, I'm not really for the bring your whole self to work. I don't think that we should all be forced to bring you know our snarky side if we don't want to you know or if we don't want to bring our you know comedic side we don't want to i think it's a bring this up i i'm for the bring the version of yourself to work that you want to bring the work that you're most comfortable with and that doesn't cause you any stress that's a really long catchphrase though so i can understand why people say bring your full self to work
2: <laughs> yeah i i think i follow that um i think what we would I would feel really bad about, though, is if somebody brought a self to work that they thought others wanted that self Mm -hmm. to be. You know what Mm -hmm, I do? Does that make sense? What I'm saying Mm -hmm, mm is like if you're just, you know, leaving certain parts home because you just feel like it doesn't really belong in the workplace, that's fine. But if you're bringing a self to work that is completely not what you want to be, but you is what you think others want you to be, Mm -hmm. then maybe that's much more exhausting.
3: Yeah. Is is
2: that is, is that code switching sort of?
1: Yeah, I think there's a difference between, you know, leaving your sarcastic, maybe morbidly, um, (laughs) morbid humor (laughs) at home, (laughs) like I do sometimes, versus, like, putting on a persona that isn't you at all. Exactly. Because you don't, you know, you don't think you'll be accepted, or it has has been shown that you will not be accepted. Um, Or even, like, wearing your hair a certain way, or wearing certain clothes, because... You know, someone has said something in the past. I think that's a problem.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, Jenny, you asked, you talked earlier about, um, or we talked earlier about hiring practices. I think, yeah, Jazlyn mentioned HR, hiring the best people. But uh, we wanted to know if you, uh, in a manager position, have seen uh, the ways that we hire people and if there's things that we can do to improve it.
2: Oh, yeah. And I've seen some of these, what I'm going to say, Next are things that I've seen as as a researcher as well. I think there are definitely things in our hiring process we can do better with. The first thing is we don't do blind hiring. You see the person's name. That right off the bat can just say, "Oh, I think this person is, you know, fill in the blank, you know, ethnicity, and then just decide, I don't think that's going to work, and we just move on. I think having names, you know, it lets you know the gender, it lets you know possibly sometimes ethnicity. I think those are things that people are, you know, immediately react to when they're seen, you know, going through a list of resumes. To me, we need to move toward blind hiring. And I think that I actually raised this with our HR and they're actually working on an initiative to find a way to do that. Hmm. Um, The other part of the problem, I believe, in the lack of diversity in our hiring um, or in the hiring process in general, is that I think it's our recruiting. We have... um, you know, when you look at the applicants that come in for certain jobs, you know the ones that just apply. You know the ones that we people we don't know that just apply blind. Um, it's it's I don't know that we get get a lot of diversity. Maybe because of the way the the applicants the applications are written. I mean the um, the uh, the job postings are written. Um, they may you know subconsciously inform people that oh no you're not really qualified for this job. So they don't they just decide not to apply. So we don't, we'll never know how many good applicants we miss out on because of just the way a certain job is written. Mm -hmm. But I think the root of the issue is, you know, when we go out and we recruit and, you know, NIST doesn't do a lot of formal recruiting. We don't do job fairs and we don't, you know, set up um, kiosks, you know, on the university campuses and things like that. But our staff, they go out to conferences and they meet people and they will sometimes ask those people to apply for like postdoc positions or student internship positions. And my theory is that we tend to talk to people that we're more comfortable with because they're like us. Mm -hmm. So if we're sending out, you know, all of our, like you were saying, cisgender white male um, staff to look around and see, you know, what prospects are out there, who are they going to most likely be talking to? Our cisgender white males. Um, you know, I don't know in this, you know, in this age of, um, me too, if men are even comfortable talking to women about positions before fear of being misconstrued. I, I don't know that, you know, and I shouldn't speak for all white men, but I suspect that a lot of white men are not necessarily going to seek out a person of color and just start chatting them to them about, you know, opportunities and this and things like that, you know, so I suspect that we have a lot of issues in our recruiting process because we're not, spreading the net, casting the net widely enough in part, you know, in part due to just the administrative processes involved in doing that or just our own lack of comfort mm. in reaching out beyond, you know, the, the the you know, the groups that we're comfortable with. Yeah. So I so think th- we need to be more targeted in mm. when we go out and have conversations that we shouldn't limit them to just the people that we you know, happen to walk up to that where we are, you know, fairly certain, you know, are we're, we're going to have a comfort level with.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Kind of what kind of advice would you give people who may not have leaders who look like them? And I know you that you said your role models were your parents. Um, I think my parents were also uh, role models as well. But, you know, if we don't see and like you're you're my role model, being an Asian woman in a position of management But for those of people who don't see themselves in management, because they're just not a lot of examples, like what kind of advice would you give to them?
2: Yeah, you know, um, you sort of stumped me on this one and uh, (laughs) I wasn't really sure, you know, how to respond to this question. Uh, But it led me to thinking about, you know, how important is it to have leaders in one's life that are similar to what one identifies with? Um, and I think it makes sense that, you know, when you see someone doing something, when you see someone that looks like you doing something, it puts that thing in the realm of possibility, right? Maybe in ways that hadn't occurred to you before. And it really, it brought to mind, um, years ago, I think when I first joined this, um, I was at a conference giving a talk and an Asian woman came up to me afterwards and she asked me a lot of questions about my work because she was in, in a similar field. She was working on her master's degree and, um, you know, we had a really nice conversation. She sent me an email a while later, and she said that I had really inspired her to go on and get her PhD. Mm. Because until she met me, she had assumed that PhDs were only for men. Mm. And I was sort of like, what? You know, like, it didn't occur to me that somehow in her thinking, um, because she was a woman, she wasn't going to be able to get a PhD. And I had somehow, by meeting me, she had of a sudden realize that oh i I can do this
3: Mm.
2: so that was really interesting and really gratifying um but getting back to the question i feel like you know i feel like the attributes that make up a good leader are or should be agnostic to gender and race and ethnicity sexual orientation and even education You know, is is it possible to think of things that way that, you know, we don't have to look for a leader that looks like us and say, okay, I'm going to emulate that person. Can we just emulate the people or use, you know, look to look up to people that have the attributes that we feel we would want to have as leaders? Um, There's a really great leadership book that I've read called Good to Great. Mm -hmm. And in this book, it was actually a a very large uh, study on 30 large companies over a period of time. And what they found, they actually put this research team together and they found that the companies that were great versus just being good, um, all of the great companies had a common characteristic that they call level five leadership.
3: Hmm.
2: And the leaders of those great companies had two common qualities. They were able to narrow it down to just two common qualities in the leaders of those, the CEOs of those companies. And they Hmm. were, Intense determination and personal humility. So all of the companies that had these like really like dynamic and, you know, leaders that were out there, but who were also really arrogant, they were not the great companies. They were just the good companies. Mm-hmm. That really struck me like personal humility, you know, and that was something that I didn't ever think, you know, a great leader, you know, would demonstrate. But that's their their research really, really you know honed in on this. So I guess what I'm going toward is that I think everyone surely knows leaders in their lives um, or people that they see in a public setting that demonstrate these qualities. And maybe these are the leaders we need to emulate, um, regardless of whether they, you know, align with our own personal demographics or not. And I don't think they have to be organization leaders or CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, but just people who, in their own way, have um you know forged the path or, or or a pioneer for something that they believed in you know that's kind of how I was thinking about that question because I don't know that there were you know leaders in our in my life that you know like I said aside from my parents who i guess you wouldn't traditionally call them leaders um you know but just looking at people and how they operate how they how do they work with others you know what what qualities do they demonstrate that I admire? You know and looking toward things like that rather than the exact you know specific uh ethnicity or gender or whatever of of any individual did that hit the mark at all
0: yeah, yeah. for me yeah sure yeah because it's, it's sometimes not easy to like you said find someone who looks like you doing a specific thing that you're interested in but it's definitely hopefully easier to find qualities
2: of different people around you yeah and sometimes you know maybe the the, the best leader that you see in your life is really like a frankenstein of mm-hmm. you know components from a lot of different people <laughs> that are clued together into like that that individual that you you know if that actual individual existed that would be you know who you mm-hmm. would look toward you know for for leadership um you know qualities mm-hmm there's no one perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. There's always, you know, we everyone can improve upon their their best self.
1: Okay. So, Joni, now that you've gotten a taste of leadership and you've actually moved through several le- levels of leadership, um, how do you feel about being a leader now? Do you um, want to continue to move, you know, upward and, and attain higher levels of leadership? Or are you... What are you looking for now?
2: Wow. That's a loaded question, Jasmine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think it's always going to be an evolving thing for me. I don't think I'm ever going to wake up in this, at this place that I'm at now and moving forward and I wake up in the morning and say, I got this. You know, I don't, I think it's leadership is just one of those things where you just have to be ready for what comes your way and you have to be flexible and agile and i don't think there's ever like i think in, in my previous jobs i was able to achieve a comfort level where i was like okay i know what to do and i know what when i wake up every morning i kind of know what to expect um i think in the current job that i'm in i don't think i will get ever have that you know i think every morning i wake up and there's something different that happens that i've never expected and i have to figure out a way you know to manage it but what I have learned in this past so oh, you know six seven months you know as, as the acting director, is that there are people in this organization that are way smarter than me. Way smarter. They know so much more about their respective areas. They have been working in you know their their topics for many many more years than me, and I don't have to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. I think realizing that has made this whole leadership journey much more palatable to me because I think coming into it I was thinking, okay, I have to know everything. I have to know, I have to have all the answers, ready, quick, immediate answers to anything that comes up. And that was terrifying. That was literally terrifying to me. Um, you know, but as I settled into the job and I realized that there were, you know, so many just fantastic people in this organization, you know, on the administrative side and also on the technical side you know and 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 I also realize that if I don't get the answers I need from those people, you know, those subject matter experts in administration and also in the technical subject areas, that is actually okay to say I don't know. Right? I mean, it's there's no, no there's no um, great sin in not knowing something. Um, and that, you know, that's taken a lot of pressure off and I feel like then I can just I can look toward, you know, the, I think what I bring to the table in terms of leadership, um, you know, in terms of inclusion and and belonging and, Mm -hmm. you know, just wanting to make sure that everybody is enabled and empowered to do, to, to come to work and do the job that they're, you know, they're there to do. And I think that makes made things a lot. I really, I'm looking at things a lot differently than I, than I might've been looking at, you know, a, a year ago. That was a learning experience for me, I think, these last uh, six or seven months.
3: Hmm. Right?
0: that's us to everyone we want to thank Joni so much for her time and sharing her experiences from childhood all up to now and also with leadership so thank you again Joni
2: oh thank you it was a pleasure
0: and before we end we like to do something for every episode it's called our better world nugget it's something either small or big that we kind of talked about or learned uh, during this episode that we'd like to carry forward so I'll go first uh, and then uh, Jasmine can go and then Joni will ask you uh, for a Better World Nugget. So for me, I really liked Joni's point about looking for qualities in leaders that we admire um, to emulate in ourselves. Not necessarily for us to be like an organizational leader or like a leader in the community, but uh, being someone that other people can look up to. So I really like that. Um, and I'll try to uh, carry that carry that practice forward not looking at just a person but looking at the qualities of different people how about you jasmine
1: well you stole my little <laughs> <old> nuggets <laughs> i was gonna say we should we should um emulate the qualities in our own professional and personal lives that we want we would want to see in um in a leader mm-hmm. And also to look for those qualities in other persons recognize those qualities, uh, maybe in a non-traditional uh, elite quote unquote leader, your family, your uh, community, people in your community, in your church or, you know, anywhere you go, you can find someone who uh, emulates qualities uh, of a good leader. And they can be your inspiration for
2: how you want to be a leader. Joni? Well, I think as I was thinking about, you know, these questions, the one thing that really occurred to me is, you know, the whole question of assimilation and how you can, I I believe there is a happy medium in assimilating to the culture you're currently in without you know, basically turning your back on your own heritage. I think that's something that I think I would urge everybody to do, uh, unlike what I did, um, but to really embrace your own heritage and be really proud of it, um, you know, while also, you know, making a, contribution, making a contribution to society, you know, in the current culture that you're, you're, you're living in. I think we're, we would be so much richer for that if everybody brought their culture as opposed to just giving it up
0: well thanks for listening to this episode of the racism podcast before you go be sure to like or subscribe wherever you're listening to stay up to date on new episodes and let us know what the leaders in your life look like what are their qualities that you admire
1: you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter at racism's podcast and on our blog RacismsPodcast.wordpress.com. And don't forget to visit our Buy Me a Coffee page to show us that you'd like to see us back for another season. Peace, everyone. Peace, everyone.
0: Music for this episode was created by Jasmine Duke and Kyle Carson. This episode was produced and edited by Kyle Carson.